Open up your Bibles this morning to the book of Malachi, chapter 3. Malachi, chapter 3. Hope you've had a good week. I know several, several people in our church are out sick today. And uh, I've had my own battle of illness this week, so let's be praying for the Lord to give me strength this morning, and that my voice holds up to the end of the sermon. But I know he is faithful, and his word will go forth. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on his time, on our time together this morning in his holy word. Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. And Lord... We're so, we're so glad to even sing a song like that that we just sang, Oh, come all you unfaithful, Lord, because that's really all who we are. We're all unfaithful. We've all fallen short. But we glory in the truth that we have a Savior who has come for us, who has died for us, and has risen for us. And Lord, it's in this beautiful truth that we claim this morning, that we glory in, and that we anticipate two weeks from today on Christmas morning to relish in the thought of the incarnation, that Christ has come, has promised, and he has won. He has perfectly fulfilled all that you have sent him to do. And Lord, we're so grateful. Help us today as we worship in song, as we have read your word, as we have prayed, as we have given in the offering. Lord, may you now work through the preaching of your word. Lord, you know that I am weak today. Lord, I pray that you would be with my voice, give me strength to last to the end. But Lord, I know that your word is powerful and that you will accomplish all your purposes this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Malachi chapter 3. Last week, we began... Just with verse 6, and we ended with really verse 6, one verse, as we looked at the doctrine of the immutability of God. That is the doctrine that God is unchanging. And as we've seen thus far in the book of Malachi, if it wasn't for an unchanging God, there would be no nation of Israel anymore. Because God is immutable, unchanging in his essence, in his nature, in all of his perfections, It is for this reason God tells them that they are not consumed or brought to an end. God's grace and mercy goes forth, and his patience is everlasting. God is so good. In the book of Malachi, we've seen these people fail repeatedly. And let's just pick it up with verse 7, because God tells them that again in chapter 3, verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Even though God is immutable and never changes, the people are also unchanging, but in a very bad way. They never change from breaking God's law. This is nothing new. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they all disobeyed in their own various and different ways. And generations of Israelites that have followed them as well lived in rebellion and sin in God. But not just them, of course, all of us live in this way too. We have all, from the days of our fathers, not walked with the Lord and have disobeyed God and have not kept all of his 
laws and statutes. This is what sin is. The Bible defines sin as the breaking of God's law. God has God is a judge. He's a holy God. He has laws that represent who he is in his character and his nature. And to go against his law is what sin is. You don't get to define sin. God does. And by what God has said, we know what is right and wrong. We know what is holy and unholy, what is good and not good. And this is what the book of Malachi is about. It's charge after charge from God about these people breaking his law. They have fallen into idolatry again. They've been faithless to God. They've been faithless to one another. Their priests and their priests and leaders are crooked and just don't care. And what God says here, from the days of your father you have turned aside. That's a very interesting word. It means basically to reject. God has wanted them to walk along the straight path of obeying him and following his laws, but they have turned aside or they have rejected. They have fallen off the path. God says, do this, and they do the opposite. God says, don't do that, and they do the very thing that God says not to do. Sin is a rejection of God's good order and design in the world. It is placing oneself in the position of God. That's really what Satan did from the very beginning. He put himself in the position of God. He wanted to be like the most high, thought he could even be greater than the most high God. Sin is placing oneself in the place of God by seeking one's own glory, by doing what has been forbidden by the creator of the universe. It's seeking our own glory by doing what we want to do, disregarding God's good law. And after all that they've done, after all that they've done, God, by his mercy, God, by his mercy, gives them an opportunity to repent. God is not obligated to grant repentance to anybody. The fact that any one of us repents is a testimony to the goodness and grace of God. Amen? This is what the Apostle Paul says. Did you not know that it is the patience of God which is meant to lead you to repentance? God is not obligated to save. God is not obligated to have mercy. But he does. This is who he is by nature. And so he says to them, even though from the days of your fathers you have rejected me or turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them, this is what God says to them, return to me. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Return to me. Here's the doctrine of repentance. Repentance is all over the scriptures. People try to ignore it, but it's there. This is what godliness must have present in its life. Repentance is not a one-time action in the life of a Christian. Matter of fact, the first of the 95 theses of Martin Luther that he posted on the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany, the first one basically says that, the, that repentance should be the life of the Christian, ongoing Because we fail God, but God has been merciful to us. And so we must repent of sin when we have sin. And here's God's command to them. Return to me. 
return to me. Repentance is a change. Now, who are they returning to? To me, God says. They're returning to God. Return to me, and I will return to you. Repentance is not just feeling sorry for one's sin. It's not just having remorse. Of course, true biblical repentance involves remorse, godly sorrow, as Thomas Watson, old Puritan, used to write. By the way, if you read any of the Puritans, read Thomas Watson's The Doctrine of Repentance. We have it in our library, by the way. Old dead guys, go check it out. It's wonderful. Repentance involves a change of mind, literally is what is at the root of the word. This is what God is asking them to do. You need to change. How? Well, you've left me. You've rejected me. You've turned aside. So now I'm asking you to return. So this returning is the act of repentance. But it's interesting that God says that when they do that, he will then what? Return to them. But what's interesting, we must remember, the previous verse says what? I am the Lord, I change not. So how can God return if he doesn't change? And this is what we must understand. When you sin against God and separate the relationship by your rebellion, it's not God who has left you. It's you who have left God. Return to me and I will return to you. God still stands there as the holy God who knew you were going to sin before you sinned and still asks you to return. And when you return to him, he returns to you. Not that he has ever moved. You're the one who has moved. You're the one who has changed. You're the one who was lost and is now needing to be found. Sometimes you hear people say, well, I found Jesus. Well, the problem with that is that Jesus was never lost. You were. Return to me and I will return to you. This is, this is language of God's presence with them. God's blessing, really, for what we're talking about. And actually, this language, as we flesh out the text as we move on here, is actually helpful as we see it. The returning to me and I will return to you is actually defined. We don't have to speculate what that even means. It's great when you preach verse by verse. Amen? All right. We're the ones who sin. We leave God. And we see this text from the perspective of man's relationship to God. Matter of fact, uh, James says something similar in James chapter 4, verse 7. In James 4, 7, James encourages his readers, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse you hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Here's very similar language in James. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Return to me, I will return to you. This is always in the perspective of our relationship of rebelling against God. But you say, let's go back to verse 7. Because all throughout Malachi, God makes a charge and then the people respond to God. Like, return to me and then they say, but you say, how shall we return? 
How shall we return? How shall we go back to doing what you want us to do? Well, what's the context here? And again, very important for the verses that are to come and how to define what's about to happen. Verses 8 through 12, which are very often misinterpreted and misapplied. Um, how shall we return? Well, let's go back to the beginning of verse 7. You have turned aside from my statutes. How shall we return? Go back to my statutes. Go back to my rules. That's really another word for statutes. It's rules or ordinances, commands. The return to the right path of obeying God. And now God gives them an example. Okay, you want some help? Here's one way you could return to me. Here's one way you could return to me. And now look at verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. Now, if you've ever heard a verse preached in Malachi, it's usually this one, isn't it? And it's usually preached out of context by churches or pastors to guilt people into giving more money to the church. Maybe you've heard that before. This is by far probably the most often preached verse in Malachi. And most people have never even heard any other sermons in Malachi except for this one. I wonder why that is. Well, here's the beauty of expository preaching. What do we do here? We just preach the next verse, right? There's no agendas. There's no cherry-picking verses out of the Bible. You know, we're two, three weeks to the end of the year. We're not preaching this sermon just because we're short of the budget and we need you to increase your giving, which wouldn't be a bad idea. But... Um, but this is just the next verse in the passage. This is the next charge God has against them. What is one of the ways they have left God? They ask God, okay, how can, how can you say that? How can you say that we're robbing you? How have we robbed you? And God makes it very clear in your tithes, and offerings. God says, stop stealing from me. Stealing from God? Yeah, that's what God says. The nation of Israel was stealing from God by not giving their tithes and offerings. Now, let's make sense of what tithes and offerings mean in the Old Testament. The three, there's actually three different types of tithing that God required of them. Number one was, of course, the sacred tithe, or the, nor, the, which, the regular tithe, which is found in Numbers chapter 18, the Levitical tithe, to take care of the priest. There was the tithe of the feast, like the Passover. They were to give 10%, of course, to take care of the priest. They were supposed to take 10% to take care of the feastal and the festival activities in Deuteronomy 14. And there was also... A tithe required to take care of the poor in Deuteronomy 14. So really, Israel, throughout the year, really, God required for them to be given 30%. Three different tithes. By the way, the word tithe just means a tenth. 
That's what the word literally means, a tenth. Israel was commanded, for example, in this first one, the Levitical tithe to take care of the priests. God had required them to give 10% of their crops to the temple because that is how the priests ate. This is how God designed that his priests would be taken care of. Why is this? Because when Israel went to the promised land and all the land was divided up amongst all the tribes, there's one tribe that didn't get any inheritance. And that is the tribe of Levi. From the tribe of Levi is where the priests come from. And this is because God did not give them an inheritance because he had commanded the people to take care of the priest. And the Levites would live off of the tithes, the 10%, the grain offering, and all these different things that would come in, the food that would come in, would be brought to them and they would be shared. Now think of this broken cycle. Now that we've seen the book of Malachi, because usually when this is preached, you don't get the why God is saying this. You don't get, all, all you get is just give more money. But let's see, why is this here, right? Think of the broken cycle that this exists here at this time. The priests need to be fed by the people physically. The people need to be fed by the priest spiritually. Neither of those things were happening. The priests have grown apathetic. We see that's the big problem in the book of Malachi. Apathy has set in. The priests have grown apathetic toward God and the people. So they debase God before the eyes of the people. And that results in the people's further sin and their feelings toward God being very low. The people grow apathetic then as a result of that toward God. They have a low view of God. They don't worship like they ought. They keep back what God has said to give. Why? Because the priests have minimized the glory of God. This is chapter 1 of Malachi. We saw that. Chapter 2. They were making God's name like mud before the people. God's not that important. Just bring whatever you want. I know God said this, but just bring that. It's okay. And as a result, the people had a low view of God. So when they came to worship God, their worship was low and not up to par with what God had required. You see, sin always has consequences. When you sin, it just doesn't affect you. It always affects the people around you. Guaranteed. The priest's sin of not doing their priestly work in the temple as God had required, is now affecting the people's view of God. And the priest (laughs) actions on the people led to the people not bringing offerings to feed the priest in the temple, which probably made the priest even more lackadaisical. Right? They're working for free now. Right? So they're going to do what they can and skim off the top what they can and leave God the rest. You know, this is chapter one and two. And then it's a cycle. So the priest's lackadaisical effort results in the people seeing God even worse than they did. And then the people give, you see the cycle there? And that apathy just continues to fester and fester. And sin always has consequences. Sin is like throwing a rock in a pond And you see the ripples that come. 
And it's just not that one place in the pond that gets affected. The ripples spread out over the whole pond, so the whole pond feels the effects of that. That's what sin does. It's what sin does in a family. It's what sin does in a church. It's what sin does in a nation. It always has a ripple effect of disaster. So this is what's happening. And so the people were to bring this tithe to God to take care of the priest, and they weren't. And therefore, God says in verse 9, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. So as a result of them not obeying God, They're not being spiritually fed, and that is even making their spiritual apathy even worse. And God says, you are cursed with a curse, which seems redundant from the school of redundancy school. You are cursed with a curse. But it's not the first time that the curse is mentioned in Malachi, isn't it? We, if you remember back to chapter 2 and verse 2, Malachi, God says to the priests there, if you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. So now, the people's ability to even provide for themselves and to give that offering to the priest like they ought is now cursed. So now they were withholding back what they ought to have given, but now their ability to even produce more and to keep the things that they were keeping has now become cursed and has now become even worse. Again, sin will always take you further than you want to go. You are cursed with a curse. What we can deduce from this is that this curse relates to what God warned them about in Deuteronomy 28. Moses goes over the law of God with them one more time before he dies. And he says that there are blessings and curses when it comes to the law of God. The promise of obeying God would be that God would bring blessings to the nation of Israel. The promise of disobeying God would be that God would bring curses. Remember, they're a covenant people. Underneath this old covenant, this law of God. And we know what some of those curses were. Because if you look at verse 11, something was destroying their crops. And something was destroying their vines. Something whether that be locusts or some kind of disease in the field or weather, whatever it was, their ability to bring the offering is now even hampered even more. So God says, fine, you're going to keep that. Try living on that. You're going to keep that for yourself when a tenth of that belongs to me to be used in my house as I need of it. Fine. Then what you have and your ability to make even more will be cursed. This is what God says. It's another vicious cycle. 
So they have less crops and vines to produce food and wine. So in return, the people don't give at all. They keep back everything for themselves because then they say, well, we can't afford to give. I mean, yeah, we weren't giving before, but now we really can't afford to give anything. How are we going to live? But then what has God said? If you obey me, you will be blessed. And if you don't obey me, you will be cursed. So they keep back for themselves what they ought to have given. And as a result, they go down deeper into the hole. God didn't say, only give when you have so much. He said, give because it belongs to me. The priests have less food to operate, so they get upset, take the people down even further, down a spiritual apathy. And so the people wind up saying to God, well, if you would bless us, God, we would give it back to you. And God is saying, I can't give it to you. I can't trust you. I mean, you can't even be trusted with what you have now. Can you imagine if I gave you more what you would do with it? No, 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 that cannot happen. Hmm. The reason you have not is because you have left me. The reason you have not, the reason you are cursed is because you have... Now remember, this is just one example. Read Malachi 1 and 2 to get the others. One example of how they have left God. So what's the answer? Look at verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. What's God's answer? God doesn't say, hey, maybe you need to reallocate your budget and maybe be a little bit smarter. No, God says, bring it all. Bring the full tithe. Not, not, not 9.9%, 10% of what, this is what I've required of you, Israel. Obey me. Don't wait until you have to give. Give out of obedience to me with what you have been blessed with now. If you've been given 10, then give one. If you've been given 20, then give two. That's how a tenth works. If you've been given 100, then give 10. Obey me. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Why? There may be food in my house. God knows what's good for them. He knows that the blessings of obeying his law would come. And as a result, the priests would be taken care of. The priests would then, they have their own issues. <laughs> they have their own things they need to repent from. But they also, if they're taken care of, they will honor God, which in then turns the people, that's how it goes. Now, Let me just say something here while we're here, and I don't want to spend a lot of time of it because it's not really the point of the passage, but I, we need to address it. Tithing is a command of the old covenant that was made for the nation of Israel. We don't have storehouses of grain. 
We don't have a temple to bring a tenth of our harvest to. We don't have Levites who serve as priests, do we? You see, tithing, as far as the old covenant goes, was for the nation of Israel as a legal requirement. But what a lot of pastors like to do is to use this passage to guilt them into giving. And they do so out of context with what the scripture teaches and do abuse to the text. We are not underneath the old covenant of the law. And you should be grateful for that. (laughs) We are underneath the new covenant of grace. And the new covenant of grace does not teach tithing as a law. See, Israel had to give as a legal requirement. As a covenant people of God. What is the New Testament? What is the new covenant standard? Is it 10%? Well, let's see what it says. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. All the times that Paul talks to his churches about giving, he never mentions the tithe. Instead, he says things like this. 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. 10% is just a standard to go by. 10% was the bare minimum God wanted them to give. The New Testament covenant of grace includes giving as a sacrifice, includes giving out of, not out of a legal requirement to obey God, not to be cursed, but to give because we think of God as almighty and holy And powerful, and he's been so good to us. As we have decided in our heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. That's much different than Israel. Israel didn't want to give, and God said, you're cursed. The new covenant of grace says, you're not supposed to give under compulsion. Why? God loves a cheerful giver. What is the New Testament standard of giving? It's generosity. And generosity may look different for each person. For example, the widow, remember in that little mite that she had? How many of those did she have? One. How many did she give? One. The New Testament standard is not 10%. It's generous cheerfulness Glorifying God with our sacrificial giving in our hearts. Not to appease a legal requirement, but we give in worship to God because of what he's given to us. And we could never outgive God. We don't give so we're not cursed. That's legalism. We give because we've already been blessed. This is the New Testament standard. It's generosity. It's not obligation. Now, we are called to give. 
We are commanded to give. And we all, all ought to give towards God. This is biblical in the New Testament. But you can't use Israel in the Old Testament and tithing as an example of how we must give out of obligation. And for anyone to do that, to guilt people into giving like they're Israel, is not doing justice to the text. What is God trying to say here? The point is this. You want to return to me? You want to return to me? You want to stop being cursed? Now let's go back to them. Start obeying me. Here's one example. You're my Old Old Testament covenant people. I've required you to give a tenth. Go back to giving a tenth. Return to me. This is what God is saying. Return to me. You have left the statutes even since the days of your father. Return to me. What? Do what I've said to do. Do what I've said to do. We don't give to hit some bare minimum amount to check off a box. No. We obey out of a heart of gratitude. A heart of worship. A heart of thankfulness to God. A heart of trusting God. Oh God, this might be more than I could afford to give, but I'm not giving it out of obligation. I'm giving it because I want to. I'm not giving to get, God. I'm giving to give you because I love you. And by the way, how many times do you hear the health and wealth preachers and just turn on any Christian TV channel? If you will just send 1995 right now, God will multiply that 10 times. Have you heard such foolishness before? Sometimes when this is preached is, hey, you want more money? You got to give more money. And what does that make giving? What does that treat God? How, how do we, that sees God nothing but more than a cosmic vending machine. Oh, if I put in my quarter, or I guess it's probably a dollar. Now, if I put in a dollar, I'll get a Milky Way out of the vending machine. I give so that I can get. That's how some people see giving. That is not what God has required at all. That's not the Old Testament standard, nor is it the New Testament standard either. We don't give to get, right? <laughs> Christmas is in two weeks. I think this is appropriate. Have you ever been caught in a trap like, oh, I got to buy this person that because I know they're going to give me this and I can't give them something less than that what they give me. Right? Have you ever fallen into that trap? Playing that game? I mean, what's the point of giving then if you're just trying to outdo the other? Right? You're giving to get. Hmm, maybe if I give them an expensive gift this year, maybe they'll wake up and give me one next year. That's how some people treat God. I'm going to give a lot of money this year. No, that's idolatry. 
That's treating God like a genie and a lamp. That's not biblical. That is not biblical. See, that's what some of these people would like to tell you. Give so you can get more money. If not, you're cursed. Yeah, if you're underneath the law, if you're the nation of Israel, but we're not. What is the promise? The promise here, the promise here that God has given to Israel is not give more, give your tithe back to the temple and then I will give you everything you want. I will make all your dreams come true. You'll be able to buy that new fancy house or car or dress or phone. Right? I mean, this is how we often hear these things talked about, or how Christians talk about stuff. That's not biblical. Here's what's the, what's the promise. Let's go back. Because again, this verse is never included. Verse 7 is usually not included with verse 8 when it's preached. What's the promise? If you return to me, what? I will return to you. Return what? Well, God has now cursed them. What will God return? Blessing. What, blessings like they're going to be rich and a millionaire? No, the covenant blessings he has already promised them if they would obey him because they're his covenant people. Look, let, let's just read it. Verse 10. See where am I in my notes here? Here's the promise. Okay, that's where I was. Just a second. So God says, you want to know how I know you're going to return to me? Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Now look at the rest of that verse. And how will you know that I've returned to you? See, that verse 7 is key to understanding this passage. How will I know that I have returned to you? Here it is. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. God says, test me. If you want to see how serious I am, try me. Do what you're supposed to be doing and see if I will not go back to doing what you should have received if you were doing what you were supposed to be doing. This is just how it works. Again, but how is this verse often preached? Oh, put God to the test. Write that $10,000 check. Matter of fact, I've even heard of churches, I've even heard of churches giving a tithe back guarantee. How about that one, Dave? That if by the end of the year, if you have given not 10%, you haven't given your, God has not blessed you in abundance, then you get all your 10% back. Don't think about that here, okay? <laughs> That's not what this means. That's not what that means at all. Return to me and I will return to you. 
Return to what? Return to what we were supposed to be doing to begin with. And I'm going to open the windows of heaven and pour down a blessing until what? There is no more need. Not greed. No more need. You're my people. If you obey me, I will provide for you. I will take care of you. You will have everything you need. Just listen to me. Meanwhile, people look at this verse and say, Oh, God, I'm going to give you more money so I can give, you can give me everything I want. And then some. It's not talking about our greed. It's talking about our need. Our need. Hmm. God has never promised to fill our greed. He has promised to provide for our needs. This verse is not about getting more from God. It's about returning to what we have left. Specifically, the nation of Israel. If they obey God, God blesses. God doesn't owe them anything. He doesn't owe us anything. And then what will God do? How will you know that I've returned to you? You return to me, I will return to you. How do you know I'm holding up my end of the deal, God says? Well, first, I'll give you everything you need. Right now, you don't have everything you need, do you? Why? Because you're under a curse. Your crops are insufficient. Your vines are polluted and corrupted. You don't have enough food. You don't have enough wine. So guess what? I'll give that all back to you. I'll give that all back to you. And look at verse 11. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. So God would take care of the situation that the curse brought upon them. What is it? The devourer. What is that locust? Could be. Whatever the curse was, removing the curse, <coughs> excuse me, will be gone. See, that word return is the key to understanding that whole passage. It's not God promising some riches and fame beyond your wild imaginations. But it's going back to the covenant blessings that he's already promised. And here's one more thing. Verse 12. Then when I open up the windows of heaven and give you everything you need, and I remove the curse from you so that the fruits of your soil and the vines grow, look at verse 12. Then all the nations will call you blessed. For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Return. Return to what? Return to what you ought to have been to begin with. Remember, what was the purpose of the nation of Israel? To be a kingdom of priests to the world. To represent God to the nations. This is our God. He is holy. We're a people called by his name. We live this way to show you who he is. Return to me and I'll return to you. But unfortunately, 
that never happened. Malachi ends. 400 years of silence begins. Until an angel visits Mary. Says, Mary, in you is one who is holy, the Son of God. And Jesus enters a world full of sin, full of rebels, full of lawlessness, full of wicked priests and Pharisees and Sadducees and people who could not obey the Lord. And although they could never obey God and although they could never give to God what they should have, in spite of all that, God still gives. Does God give a tenth? No, he gave his only son. His one and only son. One of the same substance, equal with the Father, fully God. The Son of God, incarnate. Think about Christmas when you think about this. You think about how much we can give to God. We can never give enough. And here's the thing. Even though we're not underneath that old covenant, it is because of this. That old covenant is not left unfulfilled. It is completed. For the Lord Jesus Christ didn't just come to born and die, but he came to be born and obey the law of God fully as a man. He obeyed every commandment of God. When they tested him, Jesus, should we give to Caesar? <clears throat> should we pay our taxes? What does Jesus say? Give to Caesar what is Caesar? Give to God what is God's. Jesus knew what belonged to the Lord and even gave the tithe that Israel could not. He has obeyed for us, friends. He was born for us. He lived for us. He obeyed for us. He died for us. He rose for us. It's all about Christ. It's all about Christ. He is the greatest gift. He is the greatest gift. And so may you think through this passage. Think through the blessings and curses. The reason we have any blessings from God is because Christ has fulfilled all the requirements of the law for us. The reasons we don't continue to receive the curses of the law is because Christ became a curse for us. Took the punishment upon himself. Died in our place. Blessings and curses. Christ fulfilled all of them. And now by faith, if we trust him, believe in his gospel, repent of our sins, we have the privilege to become children of God. There's nothing greater, friends. There's nothing greater than that. 
nothing greater. And when you give, don't give under compulsion. Don't give reluctantly. Give cheerfully, as you've decided in your heart, as the Apostle Paul said to the church at Corinth. Deciding in your heart what to give, what pleases the Lord, is your generosity, your sacrifice, your giving to the work of the Lord. Because all of it belongs to Him. We may not be under the legal requirements of tithing, but there's still the principles that could apply and we can learn from even in this life. May we apply them. Be obedient to the Lord. Not so that He would love us and accept us, but because He already has. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for this passage in Malachi. Lord, help us to be obedient. Help us to be cheerful, sacrificial givers. As we come into this Christmas season, as we come to the end of this year, Lord, all the different things that are in our minds, Lord, we can never outgive you. We can never, you can, we can never be more generous than you. Lord, you've given us everything. Lord, motivate each person to be obedient to you. Remove the burden of legalism that might be residing in any heart. I pray that the Lord Jesus would be magnified in the hearts of many. That although some are not giving out of legal obligation, may they give in worshipful adoration as we're commanded generously, sacrificially, not to receive a blessing, but because we have been blessed. Because we have the greatest gift that we've ever received, and that's Jesus Christ. We've been sealed with his Holy Spirit until the day of our redemption is complete. Help us now, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you so much for this book of Malachi filled with truth. Help us to know it and trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.